Our second Old Testament lesson comes from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, but I'm going to back us up a couple of verses and begin with 2 Samuel 11, verse 26, and then read through the 15th verse of the 12th chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the traveler. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you as king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. This is the word of the Lord. Kings have to get really good at weighing costs. If they are responsible for leading their people, for upholding a monarchy, and for their own image, there has to be a calculus that goes into their choices. Everything from the way that they interact with dignitaries to the way they choose to spend money to what they choose to wear is under scrutiny, and it can have an effect, a consequence. So they must consider those consequences as they make decisions. I also imagine that that calculus 
the weighing of cost is different from leader to leader. We know that there are kings and leaders who give little weight or, to con or consideration to how their choices will affect others. Whether it is because they have been taught that they are of the utmost importance or they have no concept of how the other half lives or they're just inherently selfish, the only cost that matters is their own. How will this affect me? Does this give me what I want? And we know that there are leaders who are deeply selfless and do not include themselves. They put the needs of their people first, no matter the cost. Cost means something different for everyone. What are we willing to pay, willing to live with? This mental math is not limited to kings or to presidents. We all do it. It is a human activity. We all, whether we realize it in the moment or not, make our decisions, the good ones and the not-so-good ones, based on what it will cost us. We know that everything we do has a consequence, big and small, good and bad, so we weigh the cost and then we act. The same is true for King David. He had cost to weigh, calculus to consider, and consequences to face as he made his choices. David is special. He knows it. The people of Israel know it. God knows it. Israel had already received their first king when David is anointed by the prophet Samuel. But when Saul wasn't working out, wasn't faithful, Samuel is sent to find a king who is a man after God's own heart. A humble and humble shepherd, David, is the one who is chosen. The young man chosen by God for his godlike heart who goes on to prove himself in battle and earn the love of his people. David is, by all accounts, a good and even a great king. He is fair. He follows and worships God. We just look at the Psalms to know how much he praised God. He cares about people. He keeps his promises. Now, this is the moment that I could and very much would like to dunk on David. I could set up what's coming by saying that all of this specialness doesn't mean much when he was confronted with his own desires. I could say it's all well and good to be anointed by a prophet, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. So, of course, he was going to blow it in a big way, the most powerful person in the land, taking something from someone who had little to no power. I could deny his godlike heart and call him the villain of his story. I could define him by the worst thing he's ever done. That is a choice I could make, but it would cost me something. My cost is forgetting both David's humanity and choosing judgment over mercy. I fall into the trap of seeing a monster instead of a flawed human who is not so different from me, from you, from any of us. I have been wrong about David, but I get ahead of myself. So let's go back to the king and his calculus. So David, he's been making choices as king for a long time when he sees Bathsheba on her roof. He wants her immediately, but there is a cost. David is already married. It's not so insurmountable. David lives in a time when having multiple wives or concubines is acceptable. It isn't outside the norm for him to be with another woman. It won't cost him that much. Bathsheba is also married, which is a little more problematic. Not for David, maybe, but certainly for Bathsheba. She definitely isn't allowed to be with another man. 
I don't know that anyone weighed what all of this would cost her in the end. Did David think about her feelings before he sent for her? Did he know what would happen if they were discovered? Perhaps he did. Um, And yet, that cost only counts if someone finds out. And so, so as long as there isn't any proof, who would question what the king does behind closed doors? So for David, it's worth this cost. It's not outrageous, and it's something that he really wants, so who can blame him? Of course, then, there is proof. Bathsheba is pregnant, and her husband is away at war, fighting David's war. The cost of the decision is starting to grow. I imagine the immediate panic when he gets the news, sitting in his chambers, running his hands through his hair, imagining what the consequences are going to be for him. But, but then he remembers that he's the king, after all. He can do something about it. What is the cost of bringing Uriah home from the battlefield? None, he tells himself. Uriah is one man. He won't be missed for very long. David just needs a few days at most for Uriah to be with his wife, and then this whole mess will be over. But Uriah won't play along with the king's plans. His calculus is different from David's. Uriah has weighed his own costs. It would be wrong, Uriah knows, to enjoy the comforts of his home while his comrades are still out on the battlefield. He does what is right for him, and he sleeps outside, refusing to see Bathsheba. So now David's panic is rising, as are his costs. Bathsheba is still pregnant. Proof of what he has done will become more and more evident with every passing day. If he does nothing, Bathsheba will be discovered. She will tell her husband what happened. Adultery, though I may not call it that, was deeply frowned upon, to say the least. This choice of David's will cost Bathsheba her life. And the only way forward, the only way around this particular consequence, is to rid Bathsheba of her husband. He can't lose his reputation. Bathsheba can't lose her life. If she isn't married to Uriah, she could be married to David. And if she's married to David, they haven't done anything wrong. So what is the cost for David to kill Uriah? Does he really have another option? He won't be the one with literal blood on his hands, but he will have enabled the death of someone else. In the end, it is Uriah's life versus Bathsheba's, the child's, and David's. So the calculus becomes a little easier. And all of this is in service of no one knowing what he has done, a lighter cost indeed. So David successfully arranges for Uriah to die, ignoring, I imagine, the cost leveled upon upon the accomplices he employs in his deeds. This has been about what David needs, and who among us in times of trouble and panic are able to remember what our actions may do to others. But you know what? Now David, he can breathe easier. He is going to marry Bathsheba. She is carrying his child. He has gotten what he wanted, and no one is any the wiser. But what David, David has forgotten what he he knew when Samuel came to visit him as a shepherd in the field. He has forgotten what he knew when he stood before Goliath. Someone has always been watching over him, Someone has always been there for him. David has forgotten the words spoken to Samuel as Samuel looked for a new king. The Lord does not look at things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks at the heart. God knows what David has done. There was no subterfuge, no hiding, no cost that David could have paid that would have hidden Israel's anointed king from the eyes of God. And the prophet Nathan, led by God, goes to the king and through a parable confronts David about what he has done. If David had hoped to place blame elsewhere or claim that he didn't think he was doing anything wrong, his response to Nathan exposes him. David's righteous fury must then be turned on himself, and he has to weigh yet another cost. He could deny the accusations. He could insist that he didn't do anything wrong. He could send Nathan away in chains and cut out the tongue of his accuser. He could blame Bathsheba. He is the king, after all. I'm sure that thought crossed his mind, his stomach dropping as Nathan reveals the truth of his story, sweat forming along his brow, his mouth hanging open as he tries to formulate a response. If he admits his guilt, if he says he was in the wrong, then everything falls apart. The way he views himself will change. The justifications he's been able to create, the narrative he's written in his mind to protect himself will crumble, and he will be left with the truth of what he has done. He has abused his power. He has taken something that was not his. He has manipulated, he has blood on his hands, and that is a heavy cost to pay. It will break him open, make him vulnerable, and yet, there is a cost to denying it too. Would he be able to live with himself, to view himself as God's chosen king if he obfuscates or lies? We'll never know, because David has been drawn out into the hard light of truth, and he says the painful, costly thing, I was wrong. I have sinned against God. So the time has come for David to face the consequence of his choices, to pay the cost. It will not cost him his relationship with God. Nothing he could do ever will. David's sin is taken away by the God who chose him, loves him, and sees him. And yet, David loses his son. And as we follow his story through the rest of 2 Samuel, calamity does indeed fall on his house. The life that follows David's admission of guilt reveals to us a difficult reality. Saying we were wrong does not free us from consequence, nor does it repair the damage that has been done. In truth, there is often little tangible reward or comfort in admitting our guilt. It is another cost. But weighed against the cost of doing nothing, of holding it in, perhaps it is the only way forward. Perhaps nothing is made better or repaired when we admit our wrongdoing, but we know for certain that nothing will be if we don't. In the end, a single choice has cost David so much, and I have spent much of my adult life insisting that this series of events has also cost David my good opinion, and that it should cost him the good opinion of us all. I have scoffed when people call David the greatest king of Israel, rolled my eyes when we laud his praise and worship of God, laughed when it has been suggested that we model leadership and ourselves after David. I have defined David by the mistakes of this narrative rather than the fullness of his humanity. Yet, the more time I sit with the king, walk alongside him in this story, I have come to realize that I have been wrong 
in my treatment of David. In naming him as something more sinister, as something worse than a human who did something wrong, I have been wrong because David is a person. He is not his mistakes. Do I think he should be held to account? Absolutely. But in treating him as a villain or a monster, I open the door to take myself off the hook. Sure, I'm not perfect, but geez, I'm not that guy. He is so bad in comparison, I'm actually really great. It is easy to ignore my wrongdoing when I can point out the wrongdoing of others, only making it easier for me to hate and separate and judge. I am guilty of the same sin of David. Expressing my fury at the wrong of someone else while while refusing to admit all the ways I have been wrong. Doing that costs me both the truth of myself and the truth of other people. And so I hear Nathan's words ringing in my ears. You are the man. You are the one. The truth of this narrative of humanity is that we are all David. We may wish to paint ourselves as the prophet of this story, but we have all done wrong, and we are all asked to tell the truth about ourselves. So be honest. Where do you see yourself in David's story? I imagine not in the murder plots or the kingly consequences, but what about acting on a desire for something you should not have, or in the selfishness he demonstrates? perhaps in using your power and privilege to get something you want? What about the panic uh, that makes you cover up your mistake and leads to more wrongdoing? Maybe in ignoring the cost your decisions have on others, in the shame of being confronted with what you have done wrong. For me, it is in, well, it's in more than one place, but especially in the self-righteousness that in the end reveals my own hypocrisy, my own flaws. I don't know what saying I was wrong will cost you, but I do know that refusing to do so will cost you something as well. I also know that we are all and will or will all be in a position to do so because we are all of us humans, humans, flawed, and we are more than the worst things we have ever done. I do not know what your cost will be. That calculus is yours to do and yours alone. But know that you are more than the guilt that you admit or don't. May we extend that truth not only to ourselves, but to every other flawed and messy human that we come across. Amen.